for the life of the world is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Visit us online at faith.yale.edu. The central place of patience in the Christian life does come from a deep humility that we don't control things. But it's kind of a step beyond that to believe we can therefore receive. All of our life, including our time, is a gift. And so we receive what the Lord has given. Ultimately, for Christians, then, that patience isn't grounded in the reality that we don't control time. It, it has to be grounded in the reality that God does control time. The only way we can even sort of conceive of actually trying to bring light into the, a dark world is if we also practice a really patient kind of hope where we, we think things will get better, but maybe not in our lifetime. This is For the Life of the World, a podcast about seeking and living a life worthy of our humanity. I'm Ryan McAnally-Lins with the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. We've come to the final installment of our six-episode series on patience, why it's so hard, what's good about it, and how we might cultivate it. My motivation for having these conversations was honestly personal. I have young kids, and in that painful way that kids can hold up a mirror to our least flattering features, they unknowingly reveal to me my own lack of patience, often in just the most boringly ordinary of ways. My restlessness, my desire to control the situation, the temptation to stay busy and productive at all times. Turns out, all you need to see your own impatience is a four-year-old taking his sweet time putting on socks. Over the course of the series, I've learned a lot from our guests. We started with cultural and economic diagnoses of impatience. Then we examined both divine and human patience. And we're ending the series thinking about the psychology and practical spiritual formation of patients. I'd like to give you a short summary of our progress over the past five episodes. First, the pastoral theologian Andy Root encouraged us to encounter the sacred weight of time, seeking resonance rather than busyness or efficiency. Theologian Catherine Tanner taught us how our finance-driven economy shapes our experience of time. Time is not money, but the seeming omnipotence and omnipresence of finance tempt us into the frantic service of mammon. Theologian Paul Daffod Jones suggested that it's God's patience that gives time its sacred weight and God's patience that enables human agency at all. Ethicist Adam Idle showed us how patience moderates not just busyness and hurry, but the sorrow that pulses beneath them. He explained how joyful contemplation and prayer help us understand patience from inside the struggle to receive it. And most recently, psychologist Sarah Schnitger explained the science of patience, how researchers try to measure it, and the kind of practical interventions that can make us more patient people. Today, the Reverend Tish Harrison Warren joins me to explore patience as spiritual formation. She's an Anglican priest and author of Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life, which was Christianity Today's 2018 Book of the Year, and Prayer in the Night for those who work or watch or weep. She recently started a weekly newsletter on faith in private and public life for the New York Times. We discuss the human demand for control in both ordinary and extraordinary life events, from the line at the supermarket to the cancer ward. 
the recognition of human vulnerability, just hating the fact that we can't control what happens next, and the temptation to break out of time. We talk about the difficult balance between the urgent need for justice and the acceptance of our human and societal limits. And the entire conversation is illuminated by the beauty of what Hans Urs von Balthasar calls the meekness of the lamb which is led. Thanks for listening. Tish, thank you so much for coming and spending a little time with us today. It's, uh, it's much appreciated. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. I've been thinking a lot about patience recently, mainly because I've become acutely aware of how impatient I am. And I wanted to start by asking you if it's all right. Personally, do you think you're a more patient person than you were five or 10 years ago? No, I don't. I don't think I am. But I don't know. With this stuff, you'd be the last person to know. Because part of you becoming more patient, I think would be first realizing how impatient you are. So if there was sort of movement in this place in your life, I mean, I'm not saying you'd never notice it. You probably would, but, but I think you'd probably be the last person to notice it. Other people around you would notice it more. That's a hard question for me to ask. And, and the other thing is that it's so not linear. I think there's days where I am more patient than other days. I think there's hours I'm more patient than other hours. I will say, I think as my, as my writing career has kind of grown, I think it's easy to be less patient because your schedule fills up, right? You're used to hurrying more. You're used to having more rush and you're used to people being respectful of your time. (laughs) The counterbalance to that, which is really good, is both ministry, local ministry, because no, people don't, people don't care. They're unimpressed with you in the best way and they, and they want your time. And then especially motherhood. I think kids, man, they will slow you down and make you more patient, or at least expose how impatient you are. I had kids five years ago, though. I had little kids five years ago. So, I mean, the the most honest answer I could give is I'm not sure. Thanks for the honesty. (laughs) It is really striking the, the thought that patience is one of those things that's easier to observe in others than in yourself. When someone shows up to you as patient, what is it that you're seeing? What do you notice about them? I think patience often looks like other things. Of course, patience is, it's a virtue. It's a, it's a thing into itself. It's, it's not just a word for other things, but it also looks like contentment. It also looks like trust. It also looks like endurance and not giving up. These are all kind of part of patience. I think what it looks like most is someone who has accepted their posture of waiting. And I think there's a, a place of humility also in that. There's different ways to talk about patience, right? It could be when you're in a hurry and you're frustrated and you're in the line at Target and the person in front of you realizes last minute they forgot something and so they have to go back and get it or their credit card isn't working for some reason and so they have to call the manager. You know, these moments where you're just like, ah, like... I need to go. And there's a, there's a humility of understanding. No, the world does not revolve around me here. I'm, as we say in my house a lot, we are not the president of the United States that things can go on without us. Things can start five minutes with, late with us. It's, it's okay. So there's a humility that comes from sort of relinquishing your control over time. 
But then there's another kind of patience, I feel like, that is related, but it's really different, which is sort of the cancer patient who doesn't know what the results are going to be, having to wait a couple of weeks or a, a month to see if the chemo is working. You know, that sort of long-suffering patients. It's related. It's in the sense that both of them sort of recognize our lack of control in in ordinary ways and, and in more kind of profound or difficult ways in our lives. But they look different, right? That same cancer patient who's showing incredible patience and hope or trust or honesty as they're waiting can go to Target and the person in front of them, you know, break something and it's just the last drop, right? It's just the the thing that broke the camel's back. That when you're suffering, it's often these little things that kind of set us off. Or vice versa, right? There's there's ways we can show patients in little ways in our life and then in, in larger ways miss it. I think there's something about control, about trusting God. I mean, honestly, I, I think so much of this comes down to the fact that like our entire life is lived in a posture of waiting, waiting on something. And we especially think this as Christians, right? It, it's kind of self-evident to everyone. We're waiting for um, good things, right? We're waiting for our kids to grow up or a promotion, but we're also waiting for death. We're, we live in a posture of waiting. But of course, with Christians, that's even more so because we have this idea of the eschaton, right? We're waiting for the return of Christ and we're waiting for things to be set right. So in that sense, I think we always are waiting and, and patience is sort of an acceptance of that or a trust in the midst of that. So you mentioned control a couple of times and I've, I find myself often thinking of, of James 4, 13 to 14, where he mockingly writes, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go to such and such a town and spend a year there doing business and making money. Yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. My stomach kind of scrunches up when I read that. Because honestly, I want to know what's going to happen this afternoon. I want to say <laughs> that I get to decide what I'm doing. Totally. I totally identify with that. In the Liturgy of the Ordinary, you point out that this connection to control is really based on an illusion that we are in this posture of waiting, but we really don't want to be. And I wonder if you have thoughts on why we hold so tightly to the idea that you can, you know, plan out your day in like five minute intervals and have everything go according to plan. Yeah, that's interesting. I talk uh, about that in Liturgy of the Ordinary. I, I also talk a lot about that in, in my next book, Prayer in the Night. I have a chapter on waiting and, and kind of on patience. And I say in there, in this line, I'm paraphrasing, it's not in front of me, but it's something like we can scale all of human knowledge and still not know what's going to happen by breakfast tomorrow. It was one of those lines when I wrote it, I had to stop. I mean, that's obvious, but what I just said is obvious. We all know that you don't need a, you know, theology degree to know that. But writing it down, it was just sort of like, oh, I hate that. I hate admitting that out loud. I hate that reality. And I, I think it is just this uh, recognition that we are deeply vulnerable, and that we are not in control. It, it's a hard idea to realize that actually we aren't in control of time. 
Dorothy Bass in her book, Receiving the Day, has this great line about how we live our lives trying to believe that salvation comes from staying ahead of the crush, that if we can just control our time well enough, that we can then live the life we want to live. But of course, time is out of our control. And so some of what Christian patience is rooted in is the idea that time is not ours, even our time, that moments and days of our life ultimately belong to God. So Hans Urs von Balthasar has this great quote. This is this is what I was thinking of when you the whole time you were asking me this question is um, is he says God intended man to have all good, but in his God's time, and therefore all disobedience, all sin consists essentially in breaking out of time. Hence the restoration of order by the Son of God had to be the annulment of that premature snatching at knowledge, the beating down of the hand outstretched toward eternity, the repentant return from a false swift transfer of eternity to a true slow confinement in time. Hence the importance of patience in the New Testament, which becomes the basic constituent of Christianity. More central even than humility, the power to wait, to persevere, to hold out, to endure to the end, not to transcend one's own limitations, not to force issues by playing the hero or the titan, but to practice the virtue that lies beyond heroism, the meekness of the lamb which is led. I love this quote, but it made me, when you were talking about the sense of control that we all want to have, which is very real and I identify with, and and when Dorothy Bass talks about how we sort of see salvation as as ultimately being able to control our time and kind of stay ahead of the things that are, that are coming for us, even death, right. Is, is this other reality, the meekness of the lamb, which is led but ultimately for Christians, then that patience isn't grounded in the reality that we don't control time. It, it has to be grounded in the reality that God does control time, right. That, that when we try to break out of time, we can't do that because we're creatures, because we aren't made for that, but that the universe is not therefore careening out of control without any kind of meaning, and our lives are not careening out of control, that um, we can sort of practice meekness because we believe we're being led. The central place of patience in the Christian life does come from a deep humility that we don't control things. But, but it's kind of a step beyond that to believe we can therefore receive, right? And that's partly why Dorothy Bass named her book Receiving the Day. is the idea that all of our life, including our time, is a gift. And so we receive what the Lord has given, whether that's really beautiful things or that's like a really frustrating moment of being stuck in traffic and being late and feeling impatient. But there's something of recognizing not just our lack of control, but our creatureliness in there that should, for Christians, point us to who is the creator, who is in control of time. Do we have someone leading us? If if sin is kind of, I love this line, the premature snatching at, at knowledge, premature there would imply there does come a time of a fullness of time where we receive the things we're longing for. We just can't run ahead of ourselves with that. That gets us, I think, into the thick of 
some of the hardest stuff of Christian life, which is sure receiving everything as a gift, but it's hard to say that so much of it isn't somehow a poisoned gift or warped or twisted such that, yeah, receiving it in trust becomes maybe not even just hard, but it almost seems perverse. Yeah, that makes sense. And I don't mean by that that we have to sort of pretend that everything we receive is is good. Truly bad things happen in time. And so it's not like the fact that we're creatures in time is this lovely, wonderful thing at, at all times. So trust is inseparable from patience, right? But I also think maybe more profound, Robert Wilkin actually said that the singular mark of patience is not endurance or fortitude, but hope. He was actually talking about Tertullian there. He was saying for Tertullian, the singular mark of patience is hope. And so I do think I'm not, I don't want to disagree with Tertullian here, although honestly, come on, I'm a female priest, so I disagree with Tertullian all the time, but. but, <laughs> you, you just are a disagreement with Tertullian. <laughs> <laughs> right. But that being said, uh, I also respect that, you know, Tertullian's of the church father. He has wisdom, much wisdom that I don't. That said, I don't want to push that too far. I think that endurance, that and fortitude that, um, that long suffering is very much a part of patience. But, but I also do want to highlight kind of what he says here of ultimately though, patience looks like hope for the Christian that it, it has to, because, because things are so broken in the world that the only way that we can have d- true patience in the midst of darkness is if we're practicing hope, Wilkin goes on to say like patience is ultimately grounded in the resurrection that it's oriented towards the future and, and towards what God is doing. I mean, I want to be really clear and careful here that that doesn't mean we, we do nothing. Like we do nothing to try to affect change in the world. We, we do nothing to try to make people's lives better, including our own life. That's not what I mean. It's an interesting thing to think about action and patience together because we we really live in an activistic society particularly with social media and that sort of thing where we see the evils in the world and we want change and that's really really good and I want to commend that but I also think that we can think that comes quickly or that that's just a matter of getting enough hashtags and and the justice and righteousness and shalom that we can kind of gin it up soon But I really think the things that we're longing for, I mean, ultimately is God setting things right. I think it is an eschatological longing. But even before then, even the things that we're longing for, kind of proximate longings, take generations often, take a long time, take lots of men and women working really hard for change over long periods of time. And so the only way we can even sort of conceive of actually trying to bring light into the a dark world is if we also practice a really patient kind of hope where we we think things will get better but maybe not in our lifetime and so we are working not just for our kids but for our grandkids or their grandkids we need sort of that long perspective i think i don't mean by that to sort of baptize gradualism I just also think it's naive to think that uh, the problems in our society are so easily solved that we can, you know, get them all done in a year or so. I just think when you look at 
redemption, it takes a lot of people working really hard for long periods of time. And you think, well, in the middle of that, they didn't know change was coming. And we can look at something like civil rights and say, we sort of know there was there was hope and there was change made or or anything. I mean, the the end of slavery or the voting for women. But in the middle of it, they had no idea if things would get worse or better. And so hope and, and a patient sort of hope is the only thing that actually gave the ability to continue their work, right? So in other words, I think that patients can get a bad rap, that Christians are just trying to teach folks to be like bovine in their passive acceptance of suffering. And I don't think that's true. I think there's always a witness for for seeking light, for seeking active redemption, for seeking active change and, and bringing active peace in the world. But I also think that's always tempered a very real idea that sin is deeper and darker than we think. And so we're not, it's, we're not going to be able to, to fix this fast or fix this easily. I think you're on really important stuff here. And in a lot of ways, honestly, you were anticipating the sort of questions that I would follow up with as you zigged and zagged. (laughs) Sorry. I started preaching. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Patience, but that not being quietism, a long view, but that not being gradualism. Yeah. There's one, there's one place where I still, I want to try to find the synthesis if it's there, because the sort of historical examples that you gave, they involve these long arcs, right? They're lengthy stories and they're still in great part ongoing, Mm -hmm. but there are also these moments of intense urgency where it's not like in around 1919, 1920 or so women activists were saying, yeah, this could happen a a little later. It was like, that was the moment now. (laughs) Right. When do we want it? Eventually. (laughs) Similarly, there are those two just like really decisive and and insightful texts from King, the letter from the Birmingham jail and why we can't wait that say, no, long processes are not the right thing now. And I I wonder, do you have any wisdom about what sort of discernment is involved at the level of social action, but even also in the level of an individual life between I'm in the midst of the slow grinding of hope where haltingly and often with a lot of backsliding, you get little glimpses of the kingdom of God coming to be versus this is the moment. Waiting is not only not easy, as a Mo Willem book puts it, but waiting is not right for now. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure there's a prescriptive answer. And in, in other words, I, I don't know if it's like, okay, in this situation, you wait. And in this situation, you don't. I, I don't exactly have an answer. I mean, as I grow older in the Christian life, I just see more and more has to do with discerning your moment, discerning the times, discerning one's particular calling in a particular place and time. And that's really hard. And I think there is there is just this tension of the fact that we really can actually bring change in the world. And yet this reality that we, things will not be fully set right until Jesus himself sets things right. I think that we can shy away from that. I talk in prayer in the night about the sort of the wild street preacher that's like repent for the kingdom is near. Like in 
urbane circles, we want to think, you know, our faith has nothing to do with that, has nothing to do with his kind of fundamentalist, the rapture's coming kind of faith. And I think that rapture theology and that sort of thing has really, really hurt our view of eschatological hope and the idea that we wait for the resurrection of the dead and life of the world to come. But Truly, I mean, that's a, that's a real part of Christianity that we can't avoid. We say it weekly, right, in the creed, as, as we are waiting for the life of the world to come. And yet that world crashes into our moment. That's not just a static out there in the future that, that's actually coming. The kingdom is rushing towards us. And so we can participate in real change. Like you said, Dr. King is constantly calling the white church out of gradualism, out of a call for patience and saying, that patience is actually being used as a way to christen cowardice, right? That patience is a way to christen an action, to just bolster the status quo. And, and I think this is true. I think when people empower, tell people not empowered to have patience, it's a really different call than when people who are experiencing oppression are calling one another to patience, right? But I wanted to say in the Christian life, there's both. I, my friend, Esau Macaulay, who wrote a book called Reading Well Black, we talked about um, the way that Paul deals with slavery in scripture. And the fact is, Paul kind of plants this bomb, you know, to treat the slave as a brother, that if that was taken truly seriously, it would, it would undo slavery, right? It would, it would make slavery impossible. You can't treat someone like a brother and also own them. Yet, Paul didn't just say, okay, guys, let's end slavery today. Like there was this gradualism sort of built in. And you see this, of course, in American history as well. We didn't go straight from the constitution to, you know, the next day women and people of color are all equal as it should have been, even though there was kind of this professed truth, there were all these actual institutional things that, that America was built on that, that went against the actual professed truth. So there needed to be a, a dismantling of institutions, which takes time. So what Esau was saying is you can't get around the fact that there's just some gradualism that's there in scripture in the approach to real evil, that it's not undone in a moment. And it's not undone, at least in extremely clear commands by Jesus or by Paul. And yet in that, there's these bombs planted that dismantle the entire system if you actually start taking them seriously. It's interesting to look at sort of the relationship between Dr. King and someone like Clarence Jordan, right, who were having this conversation about how gradual things should go or not. And both on the side of rights and of quality, but they were kind of arguing about how, how fast change should go. And, and, and if change needs to flow from communities where hearts are changed, or if change needs to flow from a more legal kind of way of change. I, I love Clarence Jordan, but it was easier for him to make arguments about patience, about heart change, because he was white, right? Even though he certainly suffered for his views, he didn't have to live with the constant legal oppression that King did. Yeah. 
But what I'm saying is that even within the Christian community, these arguments were happening at the time. Like, how fast do we go? How urgent do we need to be? How slow do we go? And there wasn't consensus around that. But I do think power dynamics are real here. So if you are someone who benefits, <laughs> if, you, if you're someone who has power, then I think we have to be slower to call people who have less power to patience. Patience shouldn't be weaponized is what I'm saying. Yeah. But I also don't want to let go of the fact that patience is an actual and real virtue. Cause I think there's another side of that where we can say everything is urgent. The moment of our, our culture calls for kind of constant advocacy. I think that we can therefore make patience, not a virtue. And I, I just, I want to hold on to the fact that love really is patient. I mean, that I think that's really true. So what I hear you saying is with respect to how patience bears on action, both broadly societally and probably also personally, there's just no getting out of the difficulty of the work of discernment. There aren't rules that you can just apply at all times. There aren't even rules that you can just apply to particular situations via formula. And this is maybe this is why patience is so bound up with kind of, it's bound up with waiting on God and God's relation to time, because it's, it's about, like you said, discerning the times. And that, that raises for me the question of like, what are the practices of discernment? How do you become more discerning? And how do communities learn to discern when we have individually and as communities, by and large, relatively poor track records of doing so? Well, there's, there's not an easy answer to this. I think it's multiple things. So on an individual level, discernment involves knowing oneself really well and your own temptations. There's going to be some folks that are tempted more towards hasty action and, and, and recklessness, and some that are more tempted towards cowardice and inaction. And you have to kind of know yourself and what your temptation is there. Because both of those are impatient. Both of those are not in, in the sense that patience is walking out in faith in time, in a timely way, I would say. And I think it's very helpful to have community that knows you and, and, and things like spiritual directors, which are so helpful with things like discernment, but also of course, things like scripture and silence. Um, and we have to know like all of these folks that we look at as, as change agents in the actual time that they were living had all kinds of struggles with, are they doing the right thing? Is this the right time? Are they doing this the right way? And they had discernment, right? I mean, you see this, anyone from like Wilberforce to King to Dorothy Day, you can read these journals and see. And then they all went through times of depression and uncertainty. This was a really interesting thing to hear from Greg Thompson about Dr. King is, is how long King struggled before his death with, with depression and uncertainty about what his next move should be and really not, not sure. And, uh, whether or not to kind of pull out of public life or go further into it. And, um, and you see the same mother Teresa deal, dealt deeply with depression, not sure she was doing the right thing at the right time. Dorothy Day constantly is questioning sort of how strategically what's the best move to help workers? When do they go slow? When do they go fast? All the things we're sort of talking about, it now seems like, oh, they clearly knew what they were doing. They actually didn't. And we're wrestling with these questions of, of timing 
and, and how fast or slow to go the whole time. And so some of this is like, just, it's the Holy spirit, right? The Holy spirit brings change and, and leads us even when we don't really necessarily know what we're doing. But in terms of kind of what community things we can do, I'd say, um, I mean, I just want to be aware or bring up or throw out in this kind of mix that I do think things like the internet and Twitter and our Twitter discourse really sort of train us towards impatience. They train us towards thinking of quick solutions. One of the things that I want to make a distinction on here is that even though there are times of like urgent change, like you brought up in the civil rights movement, they were still thinking institutionally about that. I mean, urgent change even then was still things like bills going through Congress, right? That, that just takes time in ways that when we say urgent change now, we, often we're thinking this is, this is all we want to talk about for the next three weeks on Twitter before we move on to something else. I really re- respect my friends who are doing advocacy that, that actually involves like institutional change, legal change, things like reform of immigration bills, which most of us are like, we care about in an urgent way for a couple of weeks a year when it's being talked about, and then we don't anymore, right? But there's people that are working day in and day out for, for change that in some senses, I mean, it is urgent. I guess what I mean is like, even what we meant in the 60s as urgent tends to be much longer than what we even mean now when we talk about urgent change, because I think that we've trained ourselves to think fairly anti-institutionally in terms of change, but also just we're impatient people as a culture. So I just want to sort of raise the fact that internet advocacy, that, that our very, very connected world does make us less patient people. I mean that in both ways, like less patient for change, but also less patient with one another, like less patient because it it takes real work to slow down and listen to another person's perspective, especially if you disagree with them. And that takes patience, right? We talk about this, having patience with one another. And we often don't have the habits of slowing down to have even that level of patience to just try to understand the perspective of someone else. And so in terms of community patients, I would say one of the things we could do is get off the internet more. I I don't, of course, mean totally, but more have real conversations with real people, understand real institutions and how change works over time. And also practice things like silence and solitude and getting into nature and having human bodies. These are things that require patience, like the having a body just requires an enormous amount of patience that we don't think about really, or we haven't historically, because it's just built in, right? It's just sort of built into our life and culture that, that things like embodied talking will take time. But now in a time when you can just text someone, we, we don't have that as much. So really I'm saying in sort of older, slower embodied practices and even things like reading a book, sitting with an argument that you don't fully understand for a long time. These are things that build your muscles of patience in ways that as a culture, we're kind of letting go of. So I started by asking you about your own 
patients. And I wonder if, if it'd be okay if I close by asking, so some of these slower embodied practices, are you taking those up? Are there ways that you're using those to try to help teach your kids to be patient? Yeah. That's a great question. It's funny because my kids are so slow. Yeah. They're the ones teaching me to be patient, really. So this is such an obvious answer, but it's a way. It's just to really limit. We limit screen time. And so that they have to do things like read or walk to a store to or the, even the practice of having to go to a friend's house to see them takes uh, a kind of patience versus I want to talk to a friend right now and can get on Zoom kind of thing. But I don't know. I mean, for kids, like things like boredom really help generate patience. I, I mean that patience often is kind of enduring under hardship, right? But it's hard as a mother to be like, I'm going to intentionally insert hardship into this situation so my child must endure. But there are little ways of hardship that our kids should have to endure, like boredom, like sitting in a church service that they don't love at every moment, right? And I mean, we have children's church and our kids go out and have fun. But our our older kid, sometimes we just we want her to sit through the church service and she gets a little out of it. And it's mostly bored. <laughs> I know she's 11, so she can fully handle it. So, so we intentionally make her kind of sit in uncomfortable situations like sitting in church or being bored that are not horrible hardships, but are just moments to practice patience. And, and, I, and again, I just think life in a body and life with real people inevitably involves patience. You have to wait on other people. You have to wait on your brothers and sisters. You have to wait for dinner. There's a creatureliness, I think, that I want her to plug into that we just do by limiting instant gratification, particularly instant gratification that comes through screens. But honestly, to be totally honest, my kids are better at patience than I am. I, I think patience is something that we sort of learn our way out of through privilege and through being, you know, important adults. I think kids spend a lot of their time waiting. I mean, I remember that as a kid, just feeling like you had to spend so much time waiting on other people. Yeah. Growing up is in part developing the illusion that you don't have to wait. You get to be the actor. That's right. Yeah. Tish, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. It's that precious uncontrolled creaturely time and we really appreciate it yeah thank you the illusion of control is ever present god's empowering patience with us does in fact give us a stewarding control and responsibility for our segment of the world for our vocation but there's an idolatrous temptation to break out of our place in time as beautifully ordinary creatures an attempt to manage our sorrow with hurry, busy work, speeding things up, and trying to solve every problem with technology and money. But the meek patience of Jesus calls us to be led, to make the Lord our shepherd, to sit beside still waters, even while the world around us presents chaos, trauma, and damage. Not because those things can't touch us, but precisely because they can not because we have no responsibility to work to heal and restore, but precisely because we do. The patience of the Lamb is now, and always has been, a radical act of resistance against injustice. 
against the inhumane, against sin and evil and their assaults on the goodness of creation. I'm not sure I'm more patient now than when I started these conversations, but I know they've inspired me to a surprisingly joyful pursuit of patience. I hope they've done the same for you. Thanks for listening to this series, friends. Production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale Divinity School. This episode featured priest and author the Reverend Tish Harrison Warren and theologian Ryan McAnally Lins. Production assistance by Martin Chan and Nathan Jowers. I'm Evan Rosa and I edited and produced the show. For more information, visit us online at faith.yale.edu. New episodes drop every Saturday with the occasional midweek. If you're new to the show, we're so glad that you found us. Remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And if you've been listening for a while, Thank you, friends. If you're liking what you're hearing, I've got a request. Would you support us? It's pretty simple, really, and won't take much time. Here are some ideas. First, you could hit the share button for this episode in your app and send a text or email to a friend or share it to your social feed. Second, you could give us an honest rating on Apple Podcasts. How are we really doing? Finally, you could write a short review of the show in Apple Podcasts. Reviews are cool because they'll help like-minded people get an idea for what we're all about and what's most meaningful to you, our listeners. Thanks for listening today, friends. We'll be back with more this coming week. Bye.